book of Joshua, and we're understanding from the book of Joshua that God wants us to live in victory, amen? And I hope you've been living in victory throughout this summer, that you're growing in Jesus, and there's been some things that you've been allowing the Holy Spirit to work on in you, and you're learning to live in victory in every single area of your life. Well, today, I want us to look at chapters 7 and 8. It's really the same story. It's the story of the Israelites and their, um, their struggle with this conquering of the city of Ai. And in this moment, God teaches his people a very important lesson. It's actually an extremely important lesson. If this lesson doesn't get developed in their lives then there will be serious consequences in their future as they try to live in relationship with God the Father. It'll just be difficult to be in relationship with him every single day if they don't learn this very important lesson. And this lesson that God was teaching his people is also extremely important for us. This lesson is timeless. Every generation needs this lesson. Every person will benefit from this in very important character trait. This important lesson is that obedience to God leads to victory. We've been talking about victory in every area of our life. And if you want to see victory in an area of your life, guess what it will require? Obedience to God. Now, this is what God's people were learning in Joshua 7 and 8. They were learning that obedience to God leads to victory. They're also learning that disobedience to God leads to defeat. Now here's what's interesting. From the moment God created man and woman in his image and placed them in the Garden of Eden, you and I have dealt with this issue. Humanity, mankind, has dealt with this challenge. Either we live life God's way or my way. Now, Frank Sinatra, what did he say? I'll live it my way, right? I'll do it my way. I'll ignore God. I'll do it my way. But God's word tells us to live life God's way. That in every area of our life, we should choose to obey the Lord instead of obeying ourselves. We can also do a good little history lesson and look back and study societies. And what's interesting is you'll find this common thread. If you look at every society, every culture, everywhere on this planet, you'll find something in every culture. Here's something you'll find. You'll find that Satan is always trying to pull those people away from God. And he'll use all kinds of ways, all kinds of different manipulative lies, it might be false religion. It might be crazy government. It could be all kinds of extremes, but all of them are to lead that society further and further away from the one true God. And in Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8, we can see this taking place in the people of God. That the enemy is trying in this moment to, to move them away just for a little moment away from God. And the same thing happens to you and me. 
What's interesting is the people of God, they, they lived in a nation that historically has been one of the most prolific cultures in the worship of every false thing. That's the Egyptian culture. So they're coming out of this culture that has literally made up a God for everything. Frogs, birds, cats, every possible thing you can think of has its own God. So the Egyptian culture has been just multiple gods everywhere. And all of this multiple worship has led the culture into doing life my way instead of God's way. It's encouraged life lived in our sin nature instead of in obedience to God. And so the Israelites are coming from that culture where they've lived for 400 years, and they're moving into the Mesopotamia area, the the Palestinian area, where it's full of all kinds of different kingdoms, but the Canaanite gods are even worse than the Egyptian gods. The Canaanite gods of all these different kingdoms that the Israelites are now advancing upon, the Canaanite gods had horrible mistreatment of mankind. There was rampant and horrible sexual sin. There was human sacrifice. And there was even the killing of babies to satisfy gods. Now, this is what Satan does, doesn't he? He pulls cultures away from God. And the further you get away from God, the more a culture will embrace sinful practices that lead to multiple forms of evil. Now, thankfully, you and I don't live in a culture like that. I wish. We've done the same thing here, haven't we? I don't think it's a coincidence that we outlawed praying in schools in the early 60s. And by the early 70s, we also started sacrificing our babies to the God of choice. We did the same thing. That's not a coincidence. It's just how Satan works a scheme. It's how he works a lie. It's how he works a manipulation in a culture to believe a lie that leads to an evil practice. And behind all of that is just to get you and I to live life my way. To embrace our own urges, our own desires. The modern way to say that is our own animalistic tendencies that have been passed down through evolution to help me live life my way. And so as the Israelites are moving into the promised land, they find that every city and every people group that God is asking them to conquer has learned how to live life their way. And now God is asking Joshua and his people to wipe out that form of living, to do away with it. Because if it sticks around, if it's encouraged, then you will also find yourself outside of relationship with God and leading to destructive practices in your way. It will lead to the embrace of this kind of life where you just live life without God and you live my way. And so this is what the people of God are being asked to do, which leads us to Joshua 7 and 8, where the people of God have experienced the thrill of victory in chapter 6 when they've defeated Jericho. They've experienced the agony of defeat in chapter 7 where they went to battle 
for the nation, for the city of Ai and got defeated. And then they're going to experience the thrill of victory again in chapter 8. And God is showing his people that life lived in obedience to God and his word always leads to victory. Now, Pastor Cooper did a great job the past couple weeks while we were away of sharing from chapter 6 and chapter 7. And in an effort to learn this lesson that obedience to God leads to victory, I want to go back a little bit into chapter 7 and then extend into chapter 8. But I think it would take far too long to read all of that this morning unless we wanted to read it like sequentially and we each read a little bit at a time. Yeah, some of you are like, no, we're not doing that. Okay, so then I'll just paraphrase it for us, okay? I'll paraphrase chapter 7 and 8 and a little bit of 6, okay? Remember in chapter 6, Jericho has been defeated. And marched against Jericho. God knocked down the walls and they defeated their enemy. But in that moment of Jericho, there was something very important that God asked them to obey. God commanded them that all the spoils of the battle, all the income of the battle were to be given to him. That was the command. And Achan disobeyed the command. We get into chapter 7 and we discover that Achan disobeyed God. He took some gold, he took some silver, and he took some fine clothes for himself. Why? Because Achan wanted to live my way. He wanted to do things his way. And his disobedience caused a huge problem. Now, because there was sin in the nation, God didn't bless them. And when they go to attack the city of Ai, they're defeated. There's a moment of repentance that Pastor Cooper talked about last week where the people needed to learn that one of the most important things that you do when you sin against God is you, you bring yourself to God and you repent of your sin and you move on in your life in obedience to God. So there's this moment of repentance that leads to the healing of the nation and victory in people's personal lives, but also leads to victory in the entire nation. God reveals in that moment that it was Achan that had sinned and him and his family were disciplined for their sin. And that takes us to chapter 8. In chapter 8, because of their repentance and because of their removal of sin in their nation and their lives, God gives Joshua a new plan for attacking the city of Ai through an ambush, kind of like guerrilla warfare. And Joshua and the army, they obey God and they attack Ai and they're victorious. All of this was God's important lesson that obedience to him leads to victory. And living life my way ends in defeat. It took them about a week to learn this lesson, but we see this principle of obedience to God leading to victory over and over again in the Bible. In fact, it's a common thread over and over and over again. We see it from the beginning to the end. We see it in our biblical heroes like Noah, Joseph, Deborah and Moses, David, Daniel, Esther, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, all of them experience that their obedience to God leads to victory. All these individuals 
had real life challenges set before them and they chose to obey God. For some, the culture was demanding that they deny God and they said, no, I will not. I will serve God with all of my heart and I will stand up against it. They're all good examples that obedience to God leads to victory. Now, I believe that you and I have the same challenge set before us today. The same exact challenge is set before you and I every single time we walk out the front door of our house. As we walk into the public byways and highways, the marketplace of our culture, this is the challenge set before us in the time period in which you and I are living. We also have a choice to live life my way or to live life God's way. And you and I, in some ways, have it even more difficult because the world has grown very narcissistic, hasn't it? We've grown more and more selfish as we've gone along, and we might possibly live in one of the most narcissistic nations on the planet today. So our nation has lots of false gods too that pull us away from God, and we get to choose to be faithful and obedient to the Holy Spirit's prompting and God's word and live in victory. That's our choice. But there's also a specific obedience that God was reminding his people about with the Jericho and I situation. And in a moment, I want to share three reasons that you and I are three ways that we can be obedient to God. But before we get into that, I, I want to share one specific thing that you can notice and pull out of the Jericho and I situation that is significant to the context of the situation. And this specific obedience is a financial one. It's a financial one. Because remember God's direction in regards to our finances is that we should honor the Lord by giving to him the first of our income and then keep the rest for ourselves. That's God's uh, command and foundation all throughout scripture. And here we see that in the story of Jericho and I. The first income the Israelites received was to be given to God because Jericho was the first city that they conquered in the promised land. And God says, I want you to give that income to me. But then all the other cities they could keep for themselves. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 2, it says, You shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. And then in Joshua chapter 11, verse 14, it says the Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of the cities. All the cities of the nation. All were plundered and they took for themselves. Now here's the specific obedience that we see. God asked them to give to him first and then they could keep the rest. This financial practice of obedience to God is still the way to live in financial victory today. It's still the way you see financial victory in your life. What's interesting about this 
financial practice of obedience to God is that every time we enter this obedient practice of giving to God first, a miracle happens. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've sure experienced this a lot in my life. A miracle takes place every time you obey God financially. Because when you give to God first, then we get to keep the rest, but the miracle that happens is God blesses the rest. Whatever is the rest, God blesses it, and you understand that you get to live in financial victory because you put God first. And sometimes I can't explain it to you. All I can do is tell you this. What we had made it to the end of the month, and it shouldn't have. It just shouldn't have. Mathematically, it should not have made it to the end of the month. It's simple math. Here's the bills. Here's my income. It doesn't work. But it did. Over and over and over and over again. A miracle happens every time. It's the awesomest thing in the world. Like if you give, you get to see a miracle every month, every time you give. It's, it's awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's a haven't spoken in two weeks cough. All I can tell you is this. Your money goes further when it's blessed by God. It just does. Here's the other thing that happens. We're talking about living in victory. Have you also known that money has a bad side? And sometimes we can live in defeat with it. And so when we put God first financially and we honor him and he blesses the rest, here's the other thing that happens. This powerful hold that money can often have on us doesn't anymore. When we give God first, the power of money gets broken in our lives. And instead of getting sucked into all the negative feelings and practices associated with money, James says it's the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Instead of getting sucked into all of that, when we put God first, we get to live free. Because now my life is not about income and expenses and about all of that. It's simply that I gave to God and I trust him and he'll take care of me. And so I get to live in victory and in freedom. Now, that's just one of many, many specific ways that God asks us to be obedient to his plan for our lives. Now, he knows that in the modern day in which we live, there are many challenges that we have specifically in lots of areas of our lives. But he wants us to live in victory in every single one. And that's why he's given us specific direction about how to be obedient to him in all of those areas of our life. He's given us direction about how to obey him sexually and financially with our bodies, our thoughts, our thinking, our words, our time, our future, marriage, singleness, your talents, what you eat and drink. The list goes on. Lots of specific direction that God has given us. But instead of talking about each specific subject, I want to finish by giving us three ways to walk in obedience to God. I believe if we obey God in these three habits, we will find ourselves obedient to him 
in every specific area of our life, in every specific area of our culture. <clears throat> now, I think these three things that I want to mention to you as we, as we finish, I think they're particularly important for us today because we live in a very modern age. And our modern age sometimes makes it challenging with God's word that is what we would consider maybe an ancient book. We deal with daily things in our lives today in the modern age that might not specifically be laid out in God's word. For instance, <clears throat> we don't have specific verses in the Bible about whether or not we should use Instagram, Snapchat, or Facebook. It's not there, right? There's not a verse that God looked prophetically ahead and said, by the way, like maybe it could be in the book of Revelation. When I'm close to coming back, there will be this thing called Facebook. Warning, nothing like that, right? But there are plenty of verses about what our eyes should look at, aren't there? There are plenty of verses about what we should be thinking in our minds. There are plenty of verses about how what we look at and what we think about can turn into an attitude that affects the way we live. There's plenty of verses about that that can all be applied to Snapchat. This is why the three spiritual habits I am about to talk about, I believe, are extremely important for us today as we head and live in a rapidly changing world where there are new things all the time where you and I have to decide about whether or not God wants us to interact with that or how much God wants us to interact with that or how we need to guard ourselves in the middle of having that thing in our life. Here's the first habit that I believe helps us stay obedient to God. Know God's word. Know God's word. You have to know this book. It has to become the most important book in your library. It has to be something you read every single day. See, the first step to being obedient to God is knowing what God expects of us. And this is where we discover it. We discover in God's word what he expects of our life and what, what we are called to be obedient in. Now, here's something very interesting in God's word. <clears throat> the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, over 160 verses. And the entire chapter, every single verse, is dedicated to God's word. Every single verse is about how you and I interact with God's word. The entire chapter is about knowing God's word, honoring it, memorizing it, singing about it, understanding the importance of it, and living it out in our life. Listen to some of the verses in Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Any young people wondering that in our modern day of age, right? How do you stay on the path of purity? Very simple, by living according to your word. Now, that's not simple, <laughs> but that's how you do it. Verse 11, 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 36, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Verse 45, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. Verse 66, teach me knowledge and good judgment for I trust your commands. Boy, what an important thing today, isn't it? Like somebody once said today, common sense is no longer common. Have you noticed that? What do we need to help us with that? We need knowledge and good judgment, and that needs to be taught to us. And how does it get taught to us? Right in God's word. Verse 91, your law endures to this day for all things serve you. That reminds us that even a document that's 3,000 years old is extremely relevant today. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I don't know about you, but have you noticed we live in a dark world? And isn't it great to have a flashlight there? That's what God's word is. It's a flashlight in the middle of the darkness that we live in to help us light the correct path of righteousness. And then verse 29, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. See, living in victory is God's heart for every one of us, and that's why God has given us this book and preserved it, by the way, word by word for thousands of years. Now, here's something interesting about God's word. It's preserved in its original form from the beginning to the end. We have lots of religious books in the world. They've all changed. You look at an original form of it, and it's not the same today. It's been changed along the way to allow people to be in power and to manipulate things along the way because a book was used to manipulate people in the beginning. It makes perfect sense that Satan would use the book to manipulate people today. Not God's word. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. Why? Because it's God's word. Now, if you and I are going to be obedient to it, then that means we've got to spend time with it. We've got to read it. We've got to study it. We have to memorize it. We have to think about it throughout the day. It has to become one of our highest priorities so that you and I can live obedient to God and see victory in our lives. So know God's word. Next, stay close to Jesus. Just stay close to him. In John chapter 15, Jesus was hanging out with his disciples. And in verses 4 through 8, he was talking to them about how the relationship with him would work. And how the relationship with Jesus, when he left, he knew he was leaving. So he's, he's giving them a precursor. And he's just telling them, here's how our relationship is going to work. Just stay close to me. Don't wander away from me. Let your heart and your mind and your actions just be focused on me. If you stay close to me and stay connected to me, you'll be okay. Listen to how Jesus said it in John 15, 4 through 8. And I'm going to read it from the message version because I loved the way that it translated it. Live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do 
in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by joining to the vine, by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine. You are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is deadwood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourself at home with me and my words, catch that right there, Jesus said it too, and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who he is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. Stay close to Jesus. Live in him. Make your home in him. Listen to him. Talk to him. Make him your best friend. Now the simple example that Jesus used was like a vine and branches. You and I are a branch that has, hopefully has fruit coming off of it, but Jesus is the vine. He's the vine. He is the source. He's the source of life. When we are connected to him, we find life from him, from that vine. We receive nourishment from him. Everything is provided for us when we are close to him. Everything we need in this life when we are connected to Christ is provided for us, whether that's spiritual or physical, mental, relational, financial, everything. When we are connected to Jesus, when we are close to him, everything we need for life is there. Everything we need for life is available. So stay close to Jesus. Lastly, live in the Spirit. Jesus told his disciples right before he left, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you be a witness for me in this world. The Holy Spirit will remind you of the things that I've taught you. The Holy Spirit will be the very one that you need to live for me. The Holy Spirit will help you stay connected to me. And for the rest of the New Testament, we notice that the writings of the authors of the New Testament, namely Paul and John and Peter, spend a lot of their time talking about how you and I must live in the Spirit. And that as we live in the Spirit, everything in our life begins to make sense because the Holy Spirit always is pulling us into relationship with Jesus and helping us remove the self-life. I wanted to read this section to you in Galatians 5, which I believe is one of the most important sections of Scripture that helps you and I understand what it means to live in the Spirit. Could you just listen for a moment as I read this section and just let it sink in? I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. Verse 16. 
as you yield freely and fully to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, you will abandon the cravings of your self-life. For your self-life craves the things that offend the Holy Spirit and hinder him from living free within you. And the Holy Spirit's intense cravings hinder your old self-life from dominating you. So then, the two incompatible and conflicting forces within you are your self-life of the flesh and the new creation life of the Spirit. But when you are brought into the full freedom of the Spirit of grace, you will no longer be living under the domination of the law, but soaring above it. The cravings of the self-life are obvious. Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, pornography, chasing after things instead of God, manipulating others, hatred for those who get in your way, senseless arguments, resentment when others are favored, temper tantrums, angry quarrels, only thinking of yourself, being in love with your own opinions. We just put politics there if we wanted. I don't know. Being envious of the blessings of others, murder, uncontrolled addictions, wild parties, and all other similar behavior. Now, as we move into the future, remember that section of the verse. All other similar behavior. That's just the catch-all. That's just the catch-all for all the things that are coming in the future that want to invade our self-life. Haven't I already warned you that those who use their freedom for these things will not inherit the kingdom realm of God? But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in its varied expressions, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. Keep in mind that we who belong to Jesus, the anointed one, have already experienced crucifixion. For everything connected with our self-life was put to death on the cross and crucified with Messiah. We must live in the Holy Spirit and follow after him. This is life in obedience to God that leads to victory. It's life in the Spirit. Now, verse 17 said it pretty plainly, and this is where the rubber meets the road. It said that we have incompatible and conflicting forces within us. The self-life of the flesh and the new creation life of the Spirit. It's that uh, movie image of an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, right? I mean, that's exactly what's happening on the inside of us. Our self-life is pulling us one direction and our creation life in the spirit is pulling us another direction and we have to, 
we have to yield to the Holy Spirit. And there are so many things in our world that are in conflict with God's plan for our life. And here's what this verse tells us. Some of that conflict is inside you. It's inside of us. It's our sin nature pulling us away from life in the Spirit. And some of that conflict comes from the world that doesn't want to live for God. Some of the conflict is external and must be conquered just the same through obedience to God. And when we let the Holy Spirit live powerfully in us, and as verse 16 says, when we yield freely and fully to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, we abandon the cravings of the self-life. When that happens, we begin to discover what it means to live in disobedience to God. Now let me tell you what I believe is the simplest way to live life in the Spirit. It's just to listen and obey. Because the Holy Spirit is talking. You are spirit. You're just housed in a body right now. But you are spirit. And your spirit connects with the Holy Spirit, which allows you to stay close to Jesus and be connected to God the Father, who is spirit. As you connect more and more to the Holy Spirit, you will discover that obedience to the Holy Spirit's promptings, conviction, and voice will always bring you victory. Would you stand with me? I mentioned before, but it's so true. Our world is rapidly changing, isn't it? There's new things, it seems like, every couple months that challenge our faith, that challenge our obedience to God, that challenge whether or not we're going to live in victory or we're going to live in our self-life. There's always something new. This is why I strongly encourage you to know God's word to stay close to Jesus and to live in the Spirit. I believe it with all of my heart that if we, if we master those three things, if those things become very, very powerful spiritual habits in our life and those things are developed in us daily, we will live in victory, even in the middle of a very, very tough time. See, because victory isn't about whether you're having a good day or a bad day. It's not what victory is about. You can, have a vi you can have victory in a bad day, and you can have defeat in a good day, can't you? We've all experienced that. And you can have victory in a good day, and you can have defeat in a bad day. Both are true. But the challenge is to live in a mature way. And the way we live in maturity is by knowing God's word and putting it into practice, staying close to Jesus, and living in the Spirit. When we live this way, we find victory in every area of our life and in every season of our life. So that's my prayer. That's my hope. That's my desire for each and every one of you.